Mommy's Podcast. It's called A Slice of Paradise. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you enjoy it. Or, or. <laughs> oh, we're here. <laughs> Is there like a delay? Okay, good. All right. Well, welcome to season two, episode four of A Slice of Paradise. My guest today is my friend, Nicole Duckett. Is that how you say your last name? Yeah. Yeah, Nicole Duckett. And I've only ever known you by Nicole, really, because we met on our Israel trip. And um, our group in Israel was comprised of people. I think the youngest one was like 19. And the mm-hmm. oldest one was probably like high seventies. Would you agree? Yeah, there was a teenager, but I don't I don't remember the ages. But yeah, yeah, there was a good mix of locations, ages. Yeah. Everything. I mean we had Georgia, Tennessee. There was another state I can't remember. Um Texas, Texas of course. <laughs> <laughs> but up north too. Um anyway, but Nicole was one of the younger ones around our age, my age. And so we immediately hit it off with a couple others and we had a great time that whole, that whole week. It was just like, I don't know. I I said this to you earlier, but it's just so awesome to me that nobody can ever take those experiences away. And even though, you know, you're four or five states away, I know that you felt something just as important as me on that trip and that we got to share and watch a miracle happen with Anita and see so many awesome um, sights and feel awesome feelings we'd never felt. And so I just think about, I, I dream about that trip constantly. I go back and look at pictures. I just like want to take myself back there. But we'll get into that later. Um, so Nicole and I met in Israel. And um, when she realized that I was going to have my own podcast, she reached out and said, I think I might have a story that is good to share. And you had a long story, a lot of different avenues, but today we're going to just talk about one of those mainly, but I think we'll probably get a bunch of different stuff involved too. But first we want to talk about your slice. And so because we're not eating in front of each other, sitting in front of each other, we can't eat together, but I'm so excited for you to announce what your slice is because it is a first for a slice of paradise. Nicole, what is your slice? So I, I tried to think what would I pick? What would I pick? And nothing seemed authentic. And I just kept thinking pepperoni pizza, pepperoni pizza. And I think it's because when I think of a slice of something, my when I'm wanting pizza, when it's been a long day, I typically go to pepperoni pizza. And so that just, I don't know, that kept circulating in my brain. So I'm like, all right, that's what I'm going to pick then. It so is our pepperoni first pizza. slice. My thoughts, too, where life is not always sweet, it's sometimes savory, and so it's okay that I didn't pick a dessert. I'm actually, I wish I could eat it with you, because that sounds amazing, and I feel like <laughs> I'm, like, worn out on sweet stuff. It has been, yeah. I don't eat a lot of dessert most of the time. Now, there's not a single dessert I'm going to turn down, or a dessert I've met that I didn't love. I just don't really eat them a lot, but I'm eating them every single week now, and my waistline is feeling it. Okay, so tell me about your pizza, and I want to know what you put on it besides pepperoni, or is it just pepperoni? Typically, I will stick with just pepperoni, but if if I do get a little bit different, I'll get pepperoni and banana peppers. Ooh, that's one of my great friend's favorite. 
That's good. <laughs> I like black olives and pepperoni and jalapenos. But, you know, mm. it gets a little spicy down here in the South. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. <laughs> in all the ways. Um, okay, so we're going to go down this avenue for Nicole's story today, specifically about drug addiction and addiction in general. Nicole had an addiction about how many years have you been sober, Nicole? Uh, 17 years in June. 17 years ago. June was 17 years. Yes. So um, talk to me a little bit about what got you started using and why you, why you started in the first place. So I guess I have to backtrack a little bit so it makes a little more sense. Um, when I was a teenager, I kind of rebelled a little bit. Um, when I hit about 13, 14, I started hanging out with kids that were not, you know, the right kind of kids that you typically want your, want to be hanging around. Um, and so I got into drinking and smoking pot at a young age, but didn't do it for a really long time because I uh, started dating <clears throat> my high school sweetheart when I was 15 years old, and when I started dating him about a year into our relationship, I got pregnant with my oldest child, so I was 16 when I got pregnant. Um, we did get married. My family, I mean, I wanted to marry him. I don't. I wouldn't have picked 16 years old, but my family was kind of like, well, this is, this is what happens, so you get pregnant, you get married. Um, right. And so I got married three months before I turned 17. Uh, let's see, February, March, no, two months. So I got married in February of 99 and turned 17 in April of 99. So when I got married, I was three months pregnant. <clears throat> now, when I got pregnant, that, of course, st I stopped doing all of that stuff. And I thought, well, you know, I need to do right by my child. And so I wasn't drinking or smoking pot or any of that stuff that I had been doing with my friends. And I actually ended up skipping my junior year of high school, so it worked out perfect because by the time I graduated, I was six months pregnant. I was six months pregnant when I went to prom and six months pregnant when I graduated high school, um, and then I ended up having him in August, so his birthday is actually Thursday. He will be 23 years old <laughs> this Thursday, so I um, gave birth to him, and I was a, I was scheduled to start college, but I had to wait a semester because classes started, like, right around the time I was giving birth. So, obviously, can't go to class when I'm nine months pregnant and pushing a baby out. Uh -huh. um, so, I ended up starting classes that following January. So, I took a semester off and then started my undergrad. So, I tried to do the, you know, the married life was, you know, Newly married, newly a mom, newly going to classes. Um, but my marriage, it just, it was not a really good marriage. Um, he, he started cheating on me very early on. I think the first time I actually found out about it, I was still pregnant. So we had only been married maybe three months when I found out about the first incident. Um, and this happened throughout, we were married like six or seven years, and I found out about person after person after person over that time to where I just finally had enough. One of the girls was uh, my bridesmaid in my wedding. She was my best friend through high school. So that yeah. was a hard blow. <clears throat> so I had become really numb to the marriage towards the end to the point that at the end, we were actually not even really hanging out together. We were alternating weekends where we would go out with our friends and then one of us would stay at home with Dakota 
and the other one would go out. And so at the end, when I found out about, you know, the extra multitude of girls, then I just called it quits. But I was devastated. Um, I was head over heels in love with this guy. He was my, he was my high school sweetheart, my first love, everything. And I was, even though it was my choice to like end it for, you know, for good, it was, it still hurt. So it was probably a couple of months after we officially separated somewhere in that time frame is when I, um, been hanging out with some various friends. And one of my friends was like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, we're doing this kind of thing and talking about drugs and whatever. Um, and they said, you know, come over and hang out with us and we'll do this and it'll help you forget about everything. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll try. And it wasn't like in high school when I had, you know, just been smoking pot or drinking and I never really liked marijuana. It was one of the, I, I would get paranoid and I, it just wasn't my thing. I never really liked it. Mm-hmm. But when I started doing some of these harder drugs, with these friends like it was a totally different experience than what I'd had when I was in high school and I could see where it very quickly kind of took over my life um I was able to maintain some of it like I kept a job I you know kept my relationships so I was able to keep it secret for a really really long time but that it was it lasted for about eight months and I can look back and see where it affected so many different areas of my life where it took over more than what I realized when I was mm-hmm. in it. I just thought I was having fun and hanging out. And, yeah, it helped me forget about my depression, my, you know, all the things that I was going through. Um, because during this process, my divorce was also in the process. Right. Um, I actually, my divorce was final in May, and it was June when I last used okay I have not used it since then what were the things you said you you can tell us a whole list of things that it affected what were the things that you saw it affecting most um I just remember like there was a lot of times I'd try to call out of work like I was if I would been up all night or I was coming down um I would constantly try to find babysitters for Dakota because I wanted to go use and, I, of course, I wasn't telling anybody what I was doing. Only the small group of people that I was using with knew what I was doing, but my family didn't. Um, I, I had visited various family members, and they could tell something wasn't quite right. Um, if I was ever around anybody when I was high, like I could feel that paranoia of they know, they're going to figure out. So it was kind of messing up your normal social spaces, I mean, you had that I one would, social space where it was safe, but. Yeah, I think I pretty much secluded myself from everybody. Um, any of my regular friends that I wasn't using with, I didn't really have a lot to do with. I kind of avoided family events. I remember there was a time when everybody was supposed to get together and take like a family picture and I, and I didn't show up. Little things like that. Um, I was doing a little bit of modeling at the time. And I remember during one of the modeling sessions, I think I was under the influence and I I guess I was more willing to pose in ways that I typically wouldn't have had Mm -hmm. I not been using. So I feel like just like decisions that I made, I put myself in um, precarious situations. There's been a few times when I've gone out to look for it um, and I was with people that I I had just met them. (laughs) 
and I'm riding around in the middle of the night with these people. Oh my gosh. Looking for drugs. And <clears throat> yeah, I even at one point had carried a gun around and I not really used a gun prior to that. Didn't have a permit for it, but my friends that I were using with, they were like, here, you know, carry this around for protection. You know, you just don't, your decision-making goes out the window. Like you don't think logically about consequences and things. Well, also when you're like in the, midst the, of that. the situations that you're putting yourself in that to need to, I mean, right now in this day and age, it's like, yeah, we should probably carry a gun because anybody could go off at any point. But back then it was like, well, yeah, I'm going to have to carry this gun because I might get into a drug deal gone bad and need to protect myself. Right. So what convictions did you feel during the using process? Did you, were you thinking about how it was or was not right? And did you have some like convictions from your childhood coming through? I mean, I, I did a little bit, like I knew it wasn't the life that I wanted to live, but I also convinced myself that it was okay. Cause it was just the weekends or, you know, it was just during this time or whatever. Um, it's kind of weird because there was a few times that I went to church under the influence or I had read my Bible under the, in my, and my, I was thinking in my head, like my brain is just like thinking things so differently. It's eye opening and just having this like spiritual awakening. And then afterwards I'm like, what the crap was I thinking? It was almost like the devil was feeding me this, these lies of just like, it's okay because you're getting to experience things on a whole different level and then afterwards, I'll be like, I didn't experience anything different other than confusion. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it just got and me in a weirder spot. Yeah, and the thoughts that I was having during the time, which I thought were kind of revelations, were just nothing. Mm. But in the moment, I was thinking these were like epiphanies that I was having. Um, so I just, I just remember a lot of justification of why I was doing what I was doing. Um, well, right. Even though I knew, like, I just felt this is not right. I really don't need to be doing this. But it was also helping me get past this depression that I, it, it was a really bad. Actually, after I had quit, I even went to the doctor and he put me on an antidepressant for a while because it did hit really hard. Um, so I knew that I was covering something. I just wasn't allowing myself to feel it. I was masking it with the drugs. Right. I think so often that's what I hear is that it was just something that made me not have to feel. And like with alcohol too, you know, you can drink yourself silly and not have to feel any of your emotions. And I know my parents and several other people in my life have always said, like, if somebody's heavily drinking or heavily doing drugs, they're trying to run away or escape from something. And that's so often true. Um, and for you, that was divorce feelings and being cheated on and all of that. Um, but the experience that you talked about, in church or when you would read your Bible, that reminds me of first Peter five, eight, where it says, be alert and of sober mind, your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And you kind of had those feelings where you're like, the devil is literally telling me that it's okay because I'm having this out of body experience, spiritual awakening, but then you would awake and it's like, no, that actually wasn't anything. So what did rock bottom look like for you before you decided to get clean? What was your lowest point? I remember towards the end, um, it was getting to where if I even thought about using, my body would physically react. Um, I never really felt like I was addicted, but I, like I got to the point where I was craving using. 
Um, I remember, too, sometimes when I was coming down, like, I'd sleep a whole day. And I think there was a few times that Dakota would want to, he would want to, I don't know, interact with me. He was a little kid. And I'd just sleep and not want anything to do with him. And then I remember my mom found out and she threatened to take him away from me. And I think that I just, in my head, was like, no, I got to quit. This is it. I'm making my mind. I'm not doing this anymore. This is not me. This is not who I am. I'm about to lose everything that I love over this thing. Yeah. When you say that your body was physically responding, what do you mean by that? So, like, when you... When you think about, I would get to where I would just think about using, and my body would already start feeling like it was already hot, like I'd already been using. That's what I mean by it was physically responding to just my thoughts of using. Uh Because it was in anticipation of getting it. Yeah. So your mom threatened to take away Dakota from you, and that, that was what brought you out of it? I think that was probably the the biggest thing, yeah, because I'd already been thinking, like, this this is starting to get to be where it's too much. It's not casual. It's not recreational anymore. It's um, getting, it's starting to infiltrate more areas of my life that I'm willing to allow. And so sure. that was kind of, she she was trying to obviously protect both of us. And she said, if you don't stop, this is what I'm going to do. And so I said, all right, I'm going to stop. <clears throat> And I made my mind up to stop, and I just walked away. And I don't know how, other than the grace of God and his power, how I just walked away without having withdrawals, having cravings, any of the things. I didn't go through a program. I didn't go through treatment. I didn't do anything. I literally just made my mind up and walked away. And I don't remember having any kind of cravings or, or desires to go back to that. <clears throat> No, not that I recall. No, it was, it was almost like I prayed about it and he just completely healed me instantly. I don't know. I mean, we know it can happen, it happened with you and we've seen it happen in other ways, but that's just amazing that an addiction or, you know, a, an urge so strong can just be like taken away in an instant when, when you, acknowledge that that's the person that can take that from you. That's, that's the, the Holy spirit can come in and take that, remove it. From you. That's amazing. So when you're, you said you were not going to go back to it and you didn't, you haven't had any cravings. Do you remember anything that you like the day after what the day after looked like that you decided to, to be clean on day one? Um, oh, no. That was 17 years ago. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> Do you think I don't remember? It, that's what I mean. It wasn't like a day to day struggle for me. I wasn't like counting down because, oh my, if I can just make it through. It wasn't like that for me. I literally said, God, I don't want to be in this position anymore. Help me to get through this. And it's like, I just, I don't know, just walked away and didn't, and didn't look back. And I, yeah. I, that's why it's so hard. I don't know how to encourage other people to, because I know that's not everybody's experience. I don't know how to say that, well, this is how I do it, because I feel like that's not realistic. But it, it literally is what happened. I mean, I would just kind of encourage whoever's listening that's maybe struggling to just try that first. Like, maybe yeah. you just need to pray about it and just acknowledge that if anybody's going to get you through it, 
it's going to be him and and he has a plan to get you out of it. I also read another verse earlier today. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, but when you are tempted, he, which is God, will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So he definitely provided you a way out um, much easier than a lot of people have, have reported trying to get clean. But I've also, I've had other friends who have had a similar experience where it was just like, I woke up one morning and I wasn't going to live that life anymore. And I just walked away and I wasn't friends with anyone in those circles anymore. I kept a distance, a safe distance, um, didn't have the urgings. It's just amazing how God works, honestly. Um, how did shame show up? I know you've kind of broken down a little bit, especially when we talk about Dakota, but how did shame show up after the addiction was beat? I think a lot of times when it comes to um, thinking about parenting, mm-hmm. so I think about that time frame and how I was such an awful parent during that time because I only thought of myself. Um, during that time frame, I started dating um, my my middle son, Canyons, his dad, and some of that's what brought us together to um me still being in that lifestyle so we were hanging out whatever um and then I wasn't meaning to start anything serious with him it just kind of turned into something we were just hanging out as friends it turned into something and I ended up getting pregnant with Canyon during that relationship and so then I was like well here here we go again (laughs) (laughs) living this lifestyle that I don't want to live and I'm bringing another child into it but you know I believe that if if God gives me a child, it's not my place to get rid of them. So, I mean, abortion was never in any of my pregnancies, abortion was never anything that crossed my mind. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to have this kid. And his, I, I gave birth to my child and it was two weeks later, his dad went to jail for a warrant that he had for some charge that he had picked up. I, I, I don't know if he had a failure to appear or what, but he had like a warrant. He spent Canyon's whole first lot, year of life in jail. <clears throat> and during that time, I continued to work on myself and I don't want to live this lifestyle. This is not what I want for me and my children. And so, of course, he's, I promise I'll do better. I promise I'll do better. The things people typically say when they're in jail. And so when he got out, I gave him the chance to prove, okay, your child, our family needs you. I need you to step up. You need to be sober. You need to be whatever. And then he did okay for a little while. And then it was months later, I started recognizing the red flags. And again, I knew the red flags because I had, I had been there. I had done all that stuff. I knew what it looked like. And I realized he had gone back to using. And so there was a day that it came to a head. He actually kind of threatened me physically And I had went next door and I asked him, please call the police. And when the police came, of course, he ran off. And then that was it. I decided I was done with that relationship. Right. So when Canyon was two, this was around the time Canyon was two years old, I broke it off with him. And so now I was a single mom with two children (laughs) at this point. (laughs) And so, yeah, that shame, just see your choices. These are your choices. And now you're in this situation. Um, 
but I was determined that I, I wanted to have this sober lifestyle. I did not want my kids raised around this. And so I stuck with it and I just decided to be a single mom for a while. And I wrote off men for a while. I just didn't date for a little bit. I'd hang out with people, but, but that was it. Um, until I met Colby. Right. Um, and we'll get to Colby cause he's just a gem. Okay. So why do you think that getting clean stuck for you when so many don't stick when there's relapses? I think part of the, well, the biggest reason was I had my mind made up that this is how it was going to be period. I did not want to live that lifestyle. And I think the other thing was God's strength. Um, I turned to him, I relied on him and he gave me the power and the strength to be able to, to stay away from it. I didn't go around friends that used, I didn't go to locations where I knew, you know, anything that I knew could be a trigger. I just avoided all of that. Uh-huh. And did it isolate me a little bit? I mean, yeah, because those were people I was hanging out with all the time. And so for a little while it was pretty isolating, but then you just rebuild You've talked a lot about God's strength. What was your outlook on God and spirituality and faith prior to this? And how did that change throughout this process? So my spiritual walk's just been kind of an unusual one anyway. I was raised in church, went to VBS, went to church camp, went to all the things, you know, that you do as a good little church girl. But... I've gone through phases in my life where I'm walking with him and then I'm straying from him, but he's always there. So it's hard to explain because it's not like I didn't have him. There was just times when I turned my back on him, Mm -hmm. but when I turn back around, he's right there waiting every single time. So it's hard to describe my journey otherwise as, when I have chosen to walk beside him or when I've chosen to walk away. Yeah. Was there a moment in the getting clean process when you felt a shift with him or did that shift come later? Um, it's hard to say cause that was so long ago. I know that, um, why, when I was using, there was times when, you know, maybe I'd hear his voice and I'd just ignore it or I'd brush it away. And then afterwards just seeking him more uh-huh. you would just feel in his presence more. Yeah. I think the more that I would chase after him, the more, the more I would feel him as opposed to when I was running away from him, I would feel him less. Right. He's always Does chasing just whether or not we're chasing back. Yeah. What's the most impactful thing you learned throughout your getting clean process? Um, it's hard to say what the most impactful thing is I learned, uh, to stay away from it, (laughs) I guess (laughs) how easy it is to fall into it. I never would have imagined that lifestyle for me. So as easily as I fell into it, I, I'm not very judgmental of others whenever they get into the same predicament. Um, I think that there's, I have a compassion for people that are dealing with those kinds of issues more so than somebody else, I guess, that has never experienced that. You tend to be like, just walk away. Well, that's easy to say, just walk away when you don't know what that's like. Right. Have you had an opportunity to relate to somebody else in a similar situation or be able to help them through it? 
I have lots of times um, I don't really disclose to them that I've been in their shoes. I may hint around. So I work for Child Protective Services in Tennessee, which is kind of ironic if you think about it. Um, <laughs> I think that that's a lot of the reason why, though, God protected me during that time because he knew my, he knew my story when I didn't know my story. And you didn't work. It was years later. No, it was years later when I got this position. Um, and I've been here over a decade now, and I love it. But there's been lots of times when I've worked with people, they don't know that I've been in their shoes before. And I'm not telling them that, but I just, I'm interacting with them in a different way. And it's, they can sense, they can sense that I have that compassion and that patience and that understanding and they respond differently. Now, some obviously in the midst of full addiction because they're irrational and whatever, but there's a few that it's, I feel like it's made a world of a difference. I've had people reach out to me even afterwards and be like, you have no idea the difference that you've made and just how you treated me, let alone, you know, helping me through this journey. People that have lost their kids, you know, they're like, it was such an eye-opening experience, but you were so kind to me during that time and nobody else was. Right. And I don't know that I would have been that way if I hadn't have gone through the same thing. So there is reason for going through it, even though, you know, it, it robs you of eight months. Um, there's definitely, you can see God's plan working where that was kind of, it had purpose. And now you can use that in your career to be able to touch other people. And like you said, you don't necessarily parade that around. There's a lot of people that don't know this about Nicole, but, um, and I never, ever, ever, ever would have guessed that this was your story whenever I met you. But I think that's so awesome that, that, you know, God redeems, and there's redemption in really hard situations and really tough struggles and that you can use it on the other side for a greater good, a greater purpose. And you're definitely doing that. You always say when we talk about this, that it's so ironic and you're kind of like, how did I get here? But meaning your career, but I think it is like perfect. It's God's perfect plan for sure, because because of the compassion that you can show these people and because of the different way that you can approach the situation, because you've been there. You understand what loss really is when it comes to getting your kids taken away from you or almost getting your kids taken away or watching someone you love, you know, go down the wrong path or go into prison because of it. Um, you've been in some, some really similar situations, and I think that's really special. I would definitely want you to be the person that worked with my family member who struggles with the same thing <laughs> because you just can relate and they, they can feel that. I love that they can feel that and they've given you that feedback. Um, tell me a little bit, and we've talked about this in the past, but tell me a little bit about the role of the church in getting clean or during the process of using and trying to get clean. Um, tell me how that one went for you. So I was not <clears throat> attending the church that I'm attending now. And you know, the church I'm attending now has like thousands and thousands of members. So it's real easy to get lost in the background. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get very involved, they'll never know who you are. Right. Um, I was at a smaller, it about a quarter of the size, I guess, where I'm at now. And I think I avoided church quite a bit because like I said, I, you're just not in the right mind space um, whenever you're under the influence. You have a lot of, like, paranoia feelings and different things when you're out in the community and out in public. And so I wouldn't really go to church a lot during that time frame. But the couple of times that I did, I, 
I just don't know. It's like there was a block. I wasn't really getting much out of it, even though I was thought I was doing the right thing by still going. It was like I, my mind couldn't really focus on. Um, I felt like I couldn't let anybody know because everybody's judgmental. I can't let anybody sure. know what I'm doing because they'll shun me. <laughs> They're not going to help me. They're going to tell me to leave. <laughs> kind of like what my thoughts were. Right. You and I talked about how hard it was or, you know, you had fear of, of telling anyone in your church or telling anyone in the church body that you were struggling with this because there wasn't really any type of acceptance. Or sometimes, a lot of times, our churches are kind of like shunning away at things like maybe not necessarily judgmental, but looking down upon someone that struggles like that rather than, you know, wrapping their arms around them and just really helping them, praying them through it. Um Having the face, right. and I had an image. I had an image. I, I couldn't also let them know that this was. And they're so like, you don't even drink. You don't do nothing. And so, am I supposed to tell them that? Oh, I'm not just drinking. I'm doing this thing too. Right. They mm-hmm. nobody would have been understanding. And they and this was before they had programs like Celebrate Recovery or whatever. All they had was like NA meetings, and nobody really knew what that was right. about. So right. They wouldn't have even known where to guide me resource wise. They would have just been like like I had a disease and didn't want to talk to me or touch me is kind of how I felt. And so I had to keep it secret. I just had to keep it to myself. I couldn't really tell anybody that this was the only people I could talk to were the other people I was using with. And of course they're not going to tell me not to use. Sure. I feel like the church has come so far from then. And I say the church as in like Christians in general um, to not be so judgmental. There's definitely still going to be some, but so often we hear that like the church is just a home of hypocrites and I understand that point of view, but I, I would challenge it to just, you know, the whole, it's not a, what is, what is it called? It's a hospital for sinners, not a center for saints or something like that. Um, But that's true. Like we go to church to be, to be medicated, to be remedied, to be cured of whatever it is that's ailing us that week. And to, to be able to know that you can go to this place and have this family wrap around you in times of struggle and just pray you through it is so special. And to not have that or to feel like you can't receive that in the situation that you're in, alienating. And so I pray that our churches, both of our churches, I know that I, they have been, but that we can take a different look at addicts or people that are going through things that are necessary are frowned upon um that we can approach them differently out of grace instead of you know shunning them or judgmental or anything like that i I think we've come a long way um or at least i pray we have because i feel like times have changed a lot since then okay earlier you mentioned a verse that has gotten you through some of your hard times what is that verse um Ecclesiastes 7.14, I think is what I told you. Yep. And I, I feel like this is kind of my life verse The more when I think about it, just because I've been through so many bumps in my life. But basically the verse is, when times are good, rejoice. But when times are bad, consider God has made one as well as the other. And so it just reminds me that you're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days, but he's in charge no matter what, if That's you're right. having the good days or the bad days. So you can kind of have some peace in knowing that he's always in control and he always knows you and he's always there with you. I love 
I did write it down word for word. It says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. I love that. I have never heard that one before. So when you said that yesterday, I was like, this applies to so many different facets of life. <laughs> yeah. Like even, I mean, you can be addicted to drugs <laughs> or you can just not be able to fit in your jeans that morning. And it's still God's day. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so um, I do want to talk about Israel a little bit. And um, I've gone into the details of my experience, and we have gone into the details of Anita's experience in Israel. But I want to talk a little bit about what you experienced in Israel and a shift that you felt um, in your faith and something that you did to, you know, make it permanent. So I'll have to backtrack a little bit, too, before that. Prior to us going to Israel, I need to tell you about me meeting Colby, because then you'll see why I feel like I have so much um, support and strength. So when I met Colby, it was when I was a single mom with the two boys, and I was, you know, just dating guys. I I was determined I wasn't going to have anything serious, because I wasn't looking. I, I didn't need another guy. So I met him when I was working my third job at Cracker Barrel. I did that Friday evenings. I was a host, and he was working there. And so we had a group of of us that would hang out. And there was one day we went to my grandparents' house out at the river, and I had the group out there. And the way he interacted with the boys, it just, like, opened my eyes to, wow, he's really good with them. And I think that's when I started to fall in love with him. So I started hanging out with him a little bit more and, you know, we would date a little bit and he's quite a bit younger than me. So that was a little bit of an obstacle to have to get through because I was like, he's nine years younger than me though. I was in my late twenties at this time. I'm like, he's just barely an adult. Do I want, you know, is this what I want? But I, I just felt like God was telling me, this is who I have for you. And so I, we just started hanging out, and then it turned into dating, and then we ended up getting married, and so it, it was great. And then a year or so into our marriage is when we decided to go ahead and have another child. Well, I'd had two fairly easily, so I didn't think anything about it. I was like, okay, we'll have another child, and then I'll kind of be done at that because my oldest was a teenager, going into a teenager at this time. So I didn't want to have, you know, multiple kids where I've got kids leaving the house and then I'm still having them. Yeah. So we agreed to have one more. I really wanted a girl, (laughs) but God knew better than to give me a girl. (laughs) So I was determined. I was like speaking it into existence. But anyways, it took about a year and a half and we're like, what is going on? Why, why am I not getting pregnant? And I went to the doctor and they had been doing some tests whatever and then I did this one test where they had to shoot this liquid up into your fallopian tubes to you know it tell them like what's the issue and why you're not getting pregnant right and so when I went in I had gotten um I had become friends with the little sonograph lady and so she was telling me step by step what was going on she even showed me like here's your eggs you've got two that's about to be released and this was before Easter weekend this was like a week or two before Easter weekend and so she showed me there's some eggs up on the screen when she was doing the wand so when the doctor came in and they did the test the liquid's supposed to go up into your fallopian tubes and then they see it on the screen well when they squirted it in it did nothing it just pulled on the bottom of where like your uterus area is Uh and he's like 
I hate to tell you this, but I don't think you're going to be able to get pregnant again. It looks like you, your fallopian tubes are completely blocked by maybe scar tissue or something. And of course it was devastating all over again because I felt, I just felt like it was my fault, even though I didn't cause it. I just felt like, again, these are my choices. I've made these choices. And so this is my fault right. that I'm not going to be able to have another child. And that was Colby's so, first. That would have been Colby's first. Yes, right? Colby's yeah. first. And so I, I, and that played into it too. I can't give him a, a child that's his biological child. So we were going on a cruise that weekend or the next. It was right around that time. And it was still right around Easter weekend. And his family prayed over me and my family prayed over me and, you know, all the things that people do. And they're like, okay, you know, you don't think much about it, but we go on this cruise and we come back and I miss my period. And so I take a pregnancy test and pregnant. Two wow. weeks after he told me that I, would, I couldn't get pregnant, I'm pregnant. <laughs> so I make this appointment, go back in there, and he's like, I, I don't know what happened, but cool, here we are. Maybe that wow. medicine, like, fleshed you out. Like, he was, you know, writing off, you know, oh, here's an explanation, like a medical explanation, and I know better. <laughs> <laughs> I know better. That was all God. That's amazing. So, Colby got his baby. Got his his red-headed baby, and it was a boy. And, of course, I cried when I found out he was a boy, but <laughs> now I look back, and I'm so glad that he's a boy. God blessed me with three amazing sons. That's awesome. So we go to Israel. We go to Israel. <laughs> so I've been wanting to do this trip for a while. Um, the old pastor had announced doing the trip, and I told Colby, I said, it was right around when they were shifting to the new pastor, um, which is um, who we've got now. And then I was telling Colby, I really want to go on this trip the next time they talk about it. And so they had brought up, hey, we're going to do this trip. And so I said, let's go to the informational meeting. So we went, and the more that I heard about it, I was like, I really feel like we need to go on this trip. And it was a lot of money. It was. It was a lot of money. We were like, how are we going to come up with this money? I said, I don't know. I feel like if we're meant to go, though, then the money's going to come. And I kid you not when I say the money's going to come. Like, God randomly gave us money here. there Because around this time is when COVID started, too. So then you started getting stimulus checks, and you started getting all this stuff where we're getting money literally handed to us from all these different avenues. And I'm like, I told you the money would come. <laughs> and so we were able to pay for it. But then of course it got canceled because of COVID and then rescheduled. And then it got literally the rescheduled one got canceled the night before we were hours. leaving. 24 yes, hours. Yes, my bags were packed in the living room. I was so upset. But then when we went the third time, it was perfect. It was. And the third time was when we actually went. And that's how I met you. That's how I met all the other people that I made friends with. Um, I actually so, was asked to join the choir on this trip. The Yildiz asked it. me to join the choir. I've those videos, girl. And I love it. Like, I, I, I felt so connected. This is the first time I've ever felt connected to my church. And we have been going there for 10 years. This is the first time I have felt truly connected to the church. It was the first time that I felt heard it was the first time that I I don't like you can't put into words you can't explain what it's like you just things come alive to you the stories yeah. come alive to you I had told Colby I would never ever ever in my entire life get a tattoo I turned 40 this year 
I turned 40 in April, and I said I would never get a tattoo. When we were on this trip in March, right before I turned 40, he was talking about getting a tattoo because he had several. And so there was a guy there that had been doing tattoos. His family had been doing it for thousands of years. It, it was kind of really cool when you look up their backstory. So he was talking about going and getting one. And then I was like, well, maybe I'll get one. And, of course, he was like, that's a joke. And I'm like, yeah, I probably won't. But then our <laughs> tour guide was talking about the different names of Jesus, and he talked about Yeshua. And Yeshua in Hebrew means my salvation. And then it's like I heard an audible voice said, you need to get that tattoo. And so I got Yeshua in Hebrew tattooed on my wrist. In Israel, and it reminds me. Yeah, it reminds me that he is my salvation, and I'm worthy of that. Yeah, after so long feeling like you weren't worthy of anything, and all the wrongs in your life were your fault. That you you had shame, overwhelming shame, and everything was your life was just going to be a ball of yuck because of the decisions that you had made. I remember you explaining this tattoo to me in the lobby of our hotel. Like, I'm going to do this, and this is the meaning behind it. And it was so awesome. And so I ended up getting one, too. And that was yeah. <laughs> There was several of us that went and got one. And, I, and yep. I cried the whole time he was. And they're like, are you in pain? No, it's about the meaning. It's not about the pain. I'm, yeah, no, I'm crying over it. It doesn't hurt at all. <laughs> no. Yeah, all of us were really emotional over that. And it was like we went in waves the same afternoon to get all these tattoos done. And it was just so cool to know. And like I said at the beginning of this episode, like no one can take that experience away from us. The feelings that we had, the emotions that we felt. um, I don't know. It was just so cool. I looked down. I have a wave on my toe from the Sea of Galilee because the Sea of Galilee was my moment. Um, I don't know when your moment was through that trip, but mine happened on the Sea of Galilee. So I got a wave. Um on my toe and I look down at it so often and I just I remember that guy tattooing my toe and it being done so quickly but it just being so important to me that we Mm -hmm. did it there because we had talked about okay well maybe we won't do it in Israel we'll just do it um when we get back to America and I was like no like it needs to be done by this guy by his family's tattoo shop in Jerusalem Israel and we're gonna get it done today was so that special. was the significance. That's why I didn't wait to you. I'm like, I made this decision. I'm going to stick with it. Yep. I mean, I, I feel like I audibly heard the voice of God. How can you ignore that? <laughs> I got to get this tattoo. <laughs> and Colby's tattoo was huge. Um, I mean, much oh, bigger. It, it was perfect. And it was. It was, perfect. It was it so amazing. Cool. He put so much thought into that, and it was such an awesome thing to watch for him too and he was so proud of it and we were all proud of him for it too it was just a really cool tattoo anyway I'm so glad I got to go on this trip with you and and obviously meet you I would have never met you otherwise and I just give all the thanks to God and to the Crouch family for letting me come on that trip with them um but you and I have that experience that no one can take from us together as well as 64 other people on that trip. And I'm so glad you came on to tell your story. I have not touched drug addiction at all on this show. And it was something that definitely needed to be talked about and acknowledged because so many people suffer with this and struggle through it. And so many people just like you feel like they have to do it alone. And so I love that you were brave enough and bold enough to reach out and say, Hey, I do have this story and I think it needs to be shared Um, because your story is like straight redemption of the way that this all went down. And it's just amazing. You're a walking miracle for sure. So thank you for coming on. Thank you. There's very, very, very few people that have heard my story. 
Well, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. All right. Thanks, sis. You're welcome. With each passing week, we learn the incredible power of a person's story. Everyone unique and supremely designed, just waiting to be shared when the time is right. But what is even more powerful than the story is the grace surrounding it. May we give it courageously, may we receive it graciously, and may we try to make this place a little bit more like paradise. Thanks for listening to A Slice of Paradise.